Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast presented by Dream Cricket. I'm your host, Peter Dolapena, and on today's show, we have the first part of a blockbuster three-part saga featuring the former CEO of the USA Cricket Association, Don Lockerbie. Don may be one of the all-time great raconteurs in cricket or any walk of life for that matter. He's met just about anybody and everybody in cricket, in Olympic sports, in soccer, you name it, he's done it in an incredible professional career, starting at North Carolina, where he was the head track and field coach, and some very, very famous characters that he came across on the North Carolina campus, and he'll get a chance to share some of those stories in this episode before he transitioned on to his main business, which has been stadium consulting and stadium design, venue design, that paved the way for him to get involved in Olympic venues, the 1994 FIFA World Cup in the USA, and then his segue into cricket, the 2007 Cricket World Cup in the West Indies, where Don played a very, very pivotal role in terms of venue construction, venue design, building new stadiums, renovating old stadiums in the Caribbean as the chief operating officer for that event, and that has forged a decades-long relationship with the sport of cricket, which also led him, in terms of of the U.S. cricket community into becoming the head of the USA Cricket Association in terms of the CEO under the presidency of Gladstone Dainty. So there's an awful lot to cover in the saga of Don Lockerbie. So today will be part one, and I want to remind everybody that the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast presented by Dream Cricket is also sponsored by Moosa Cricket Stadium, the first and original turf wicket facility in the state of Texas. For more information, call 713-534-2195. That's Moosa Cricket Stadium in Pearland, Texas. And now, part one of the Don Lockerbie saga. Don, welcome to the show. Peter, it's been way too long, and congratulations on everything that's been happening in your life. I, I, I now know that you're a legitimate cricket reporter because you married a Brit and live in the UK. For people who aren't aware... I split my time yeah, between Manchester, if my wife is British, so I split my time between Manchester and New Jersey and other parts of the U.S. during the northern summer, at least when there's not a pandemic going on. I knew you well in, in 2009, 10, a little bit of 11. Um, you were the only U.S. cricket writer, and you were a, a stalwart for our sport, and uh, you obviously continued to uh, uh, entertain us with your your news and your opinion, and you traveled around the world with the U.S. team. Uh, we've got some stories on that, and also, of course, kept the United States readers up to date on international cricket. So I'm very pleased to join you after all these years. And for people who aren't aware, this is, it's been a decade since we've spoken. It's been a long time. My hair turned gray. <laughs> and my, I, I grew a second chin, at least one more chin. <laughs> Some people might say I've got I've grown two more chins. It's been a an interesting decade for you since then. You've you've gone on to much bigger and better things. I was looking looking at your recent resume. You were involved the Rio Olympics, the London Olympics in 2012, 2016 in Rio. I saw you did some work on the SoFi Stadium that opened up last year for the LA Chargers and LA Rams. You were involved with the Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta. Most recently, you, you were 
involved in some work with the Drive Pink Stadium down in Fort Lauderdale. That's the home of the David Beckham's Inter-Miami CF. Got to get that right. It's not Inter-Miami FC. It's Inter-Miami CF. Got to be Love the football. Got to be very specific here. And funny enough, the this venue or the location for that is on the site of the old Lockhart Stadium. I don't know if you know this, and I don't know if too many people in U.S. cricket know this. That used to actually be a cricket venue where there were some, if you go into the scorecards and the records over the years on Cricket Archive, there are actually some USA cricket matches that were staged on that facility. Well, that venue, I have history dating back to 1997, I believe, 97 or 98, 97. And it's a good story. But by 1997, that there were two venues always on that site. There were the original New York Yankees uh, spring training site that later became the Baltimore Orioles. And then there was a high school stadium slash soccer stadium where the Fort Lauderdale Strikers played for years, but it was now condemned. So in 1997, there's a funny story about why I showed up there, but I was given 93 days to turn a condemned high school stadium with a running track into MLS stadium for the Miami Fusion. Uh, Not my best work, but 93 days, what can you do? And the great story is that when David Beckham and his partnership created Inter-Miami, they were looking for a temporary place to play. They selected this location after a lot of thought, and we tore down the Lockhart Stadium. So any, any sign of cricket is no longer there. The, uh, I probably didn't know in 1997 that cricket had been played there, so you've stumped me on that one. But this time I was given a year to design and work with the team on on a uh, $145 million complex where we built seven fields, 54,000 square foot training center for the team, and a 20,000 seat soccer stadium. And we, uh, we planned it for four or five months and we built it in seven. So uh, I'm very, very proud of it. It's, it's an unusual stadium because of its capability of being built so fast. Its long-term value is that Inter-Miami is going to build a second stadium, their real stadium, down by the Miami airport, as soon as government and the team work that out. So we'll look forward to being part of that as well. The team will then be a USL stadium, but the training center will always be the official training center for Inter-Miami, but up in Fort Lauderdale. So that's a quick story on what I did basically in 2019 and 2020. You were still keeping busy. Even, even through the pandemic, there was still stuff to do. Yeah, we opened up, as you said, the Los Angeles Rams' new $5 billion stadium in uh, Los Angeles that they share with the Chargers. We also did the Las Vegas Raiders at the exact same time. So we opened both the Raiders and the Rams stadium in September of 2020, in the middle of the pandemic. And we had also, in the last two years, had finished, you're right, not only the Falcons' new incredible stadium, but also the Braves in Atlanta. And we uh, did Minnesota United for the MLS. Just last week, we helped open up FC Cincinnati. MLS is in U.S. soccer's newest stadium, and boy, it turned out beautiful. So that's a stadium that we're very proud of, too. And uh, lots more on the on the docket. Las Vegas Raiders, Don Lockerbie, commitment to excellence. <laughs> Try. I was taught well by my father. There's no other way. I believe you grew up in New York. And the reason why I say I believe you grew up in New York did a little bit of research, did some digging, and I found, you might get a kick out of this picture of you from Stony Brook High School, and it shows you in the New York State Championships, the Penn Relays, 1975, there's a photo of you 
And the caption on the story says, on this day 42 years ago, Don Lockerbie finished runner-up in the 880-yard run at the New York State Championships, losing by a nose to Baldwinsville's Don Page with a time of 152.9. As a distance runner early on in your life, you were an All-American at North Carolina in the now, there's some dispute about this, either the 800 or the 880 meters, because when I looked up the records in the North Carolina Track and Field Media Guide, you don't exist, because that's I think true. you ran 880 meters, and that's been stricken from the records. They only have 800-meter records now, so there's no evidence that you were actually there. We were yards back in the 70s, 880, and the mile. We've now become the 1,500-meter and the 800-meter. So you're right, back in 1975... Uh, I finished second in the state of New York to Don Page, who ended up by 1980, five years later, he was the number one 800-meter runner in the world, had beaten Sebastian Coe, the world record holder, to get the number one ranking. And so I went from high school in New York on Long Island. My father starts the real track and field story. He was the Canadian record holder in the mile and 800 meters. He was the last Canadian not to break the four-minute mile back in the 1950s. And he left Canada, came to New York, uh, ended up at NYU, was an All-American at NYU, I married my mother, and uh, after some other movements around the country, ended up at the Stony Brook School, which is the oldest Christian private boarding school in the United States. My father started as an English teacher and track coach and choir director, and I grew up on the campus of the boarding school. All the athletes were my heroes. I wanted to be like all the best athletes. My father coached me with another great track and field coach, Marvin Goldberg, who's now resting in peace. We were just an amazing little tiny school with my graduating class of 63 students, but from 40 countries around the world. Yeah, I finished second in the New York State meet. We ran one of the fastest four by 400 meter relays at the Penn Relays. That got me a track and field scholarship to the University of North Carolina, where I uh, excelled and, and ran well. Uh, was uh, able to then run for the New York Athletic Club and Nike and also Adidas as a pro following college, ran in Europe, ran in Asia, raced in those places. And uh, by 1980, my coach retired at age 77 or so, he, he retired. And he nominated a few of his former athletes to take over as his head track and field coach replacement. And Don Lockerbie at age 23 had ripped my uh, calf muscle and was really having to look at retirement as an athlete. And so when I got the phone call from my coach asking if I would want to be considered as a head or an assistant coach, I, I applied. I got the job. I became the director of track and field for the University of North Carolina at age 23 in 1981. I tried to make the 1980 Olympic team. I didn't. That calf muscle got in the way. We didn't go anyway. The Moscow Olympics was effectively canceled by the United States. Oh, it wasn't canceled. The, the Brits ran and won races we would have hoped to beat them in. But in any case, didn't get the 1980 gig, but became the head coach at North Carolina. And it's a good story of how maybe that translates. I've always, I've only had a bachelor degree in, in history, basically, at the University of North Carolina, military history, by the way, World War I, a specialty. But I felt like I got my master's degree from the university as a five-year head track and field coach, where on my first week on the job, I got a phone call by the basketball office. Now, those of you who may know a little bit about Tar Heel basketball would be surprised to hear that the secretary said, coach, welcome to being the new head coach of track and field. Coach Dean Smith would like to come see you. And I was like, well, I'd be happy to 
march down the hallway to him. No, no, he's on his way. Well, if I didn't hang up 30 seconds, and there's Dean Smith at my door. Now, you have to understand, my track and field office was the size of a closet, and his was the size of a suite, probably, at the Waldorf Astoria. But anyway, he came in. He came in with a young assistant coach named Roy Williams. So the two of them came in and asked if they could take me out to our running track. And we walked out to the running track of North Carolina and looked at it. And he goes, Don, this is the worst track in the ACC. And I said, I know. I ran on it for four years. It's <laughs> not, not something to be proud of. I said, the grandstand's great. We have 8,000 seats, and we share it with soccer and lacrosse, who are busy winning national championships. But, yeah, we have this asphalt running track at North Carolina. This is 1981. And he goes, what do you need to do to make it the best in the, in the country? And I said, well, I, I've raced all over the world. I, I would know what a world-class running track would look like. I have no idea what it costs. He said, we'll find out. Well, I found out that a world-class running track in 1981 was going to cost about a million and a half dollars if you also add a video board and get all the new hurdles and pole vault equipment, things like that. But the long story is that Dean Smith said to me, and I've used this ever since, he says, Don, sports facilities are like the front porch of a stately home. Certainly not the most important room in the house, but it's the first thing everybody sees. And it's true. You can go to any high school in America. You can't walk in and see the library. You can't walk in and see the chemistry lab. But you can drive around and see the football stadium, the baseball stadium, the tennis courts, and the track. And if they're in good shape, you can pretty well assume probably the library is good and the chemistry lab is good, too. And if they're terrible, you can probably assume the same with those. So Dean Smith taught me that. And I said, but, Coach, why do you need it? He said, because we run on it every day. And I've got recruits saying, well, Duke's better, UCLA is better, Villanova's got a nicer track, Georgetown has a better facility, all the big competitors. I'm going to help you. A few months later, Dean Smith helped me raise 4 or $5 million, and in the next year we built arguably the best running track in the country and an indoor facility as well. And that just opened the door for me because while I enjoyed coaching, I just fell in love with the fact that I got to design this spectacular track facility and who did I use? I used the university architect and the university engineer who had no previous experience, nor did I, and the indoor facility, the same. And then I realized there's really no consultants out there that could actually help you do this. So I decided in the summer of 1982, I think, to put out an ad. It's the only ad I've ever put out in track and field news, a magazine probably none of your listeners would ever know. Track and field news, put an ad out and said, if you're Designing or building a new track and field facility, contact International Sports Management, ISM, I called myself, and sat back to see who would call. Duke, Southern Cal, University of Southern Cal, uh, uh, South Carolina, Brown, and Princeton all called me in the next month. I got part-time gigs designing their running tracks, and I was off and running. And that's the start of my venue development business since 1981. It's quite an extraordinary story, origin story. There's a couple of things I wanted to, to touch on there. First, track and field news. I came across track and field news when I was doing research for a story. This is to be about six or seven years ago now, when a guy named Cliff Severn passed away. Cliff Severn was a very influential figure in California cricket, the Southern California area. He'd been out in L.A. for 50, 60, 70 years involved in cricket, hidden from the cricket community. Cliff Severn, does the name Cliff Severn mean anything to you, Don? No, I, I don't know the name. I'm Cliff Severn, 
I mentioned his name to various people, and I kept on being told, Cliff Severne, oh, that's Mr. Adidas. Cliff Severne is Mr. Adidas, and he would he was one of the first, if not the first, Adidas distributor in America back in the 1950s, because at the time, Adidas was radioactive in terms of American sporting goods, because it was a German brand. Coming out off of World War II, nobody wanted to be associated with the German brand. And yet they were the preeminent provider of footwear for a lot of track and field athletes around the world. The American athletes wouldn't use it. And so Cliff Severn saw this opportunity. He was the one who said, I'll take a chance. I'll, I'll be the distributor and sell Adidas in my sporting shop in Southern California. He became known as Mr. Adidas. And I had talked to, before he died, Rafer Johnson. And I, I spoke to Bob Beeman when I was working on this back six, seven years ago. And Ralph Boston. And, you know, th these are great Olympic American. You didn't, didn't talk to Bruce Locker. No, no I, I did not. Let me help you with this story. Because uh, I'm very proud of this story. You're exactly right. Adidas, the correct pronunciation, yep. was and is the founding business by Adolf Dossler. Yep. Adolf Dossler first was making football shoes in Germany. Adolf Dossler in 1936 made a pair of spikes that Jesse Owens ran in and won all those races, but they were not Adidas. They were just the Adolf, they were called Dosslers back in those days, Dossler shoes. Adi had two sons, Horst, and the other brother I can't quite remember, but Horst is the one who created Adidas, the name of his father, and his brother created Puma. Yep. And they've had this terrible warfare ever since. Some of the great stories of the sporting industry have to do with those two companies. They lived in the same house. They moved out of the same house. Puma built their offices across the street. I've been to both of them in Germany, across the river, actually. So now they have their troubles, particularly during World War II. The Puma uh, owner was a sympathizer with Adolf Hitler, and Horst was not. They had for fights over that. And now World War II is over. My father, Bruce Lockerbie, is a freshman or sophomore at NYU in 52 or 53. His coach was the great Emil von Elling, a German who had fled Europe, come to the United States, become an amazing track coach at NYU, and in 1956, I believe, U.S. track and field Olympic coach. So back in the day when NYU was actually a powerhouse, can you believe it, in track and field. So my father's there. Emil von Elling goes back to Germany for the first time in these early 80s and meets an old friend of his named Horst Dossler. And Dossler says, you got to get my shoes into the United States. And he goes, well, give me a pair. Well, he had one pair in his trunk and they were size nine and a half. And Dossler gives them to von Elling, brings them back to NYU. And he asks his team, who wears a nine and a half? My father, Bruce Lockerbie gets the first pair of Adidas in the United States, runs in them for the next few years. I'm born in 1957, yes, Peter, I'm 63. And in 1957, Horst Dossler sends my father a pair of miniature Adidas track spikes that you could hang from your car nowadays. I kept them until two years ago when I gave them to my grandson. So it's gone from me at 1957 to a grandson effectively in 2019. Those shoes still exist. I can send you a picture to a proof, but that's the story in our family. So we were not allowed to wear anything other than Adidas as boys. And then it was a real joy for me when, when Adidas paid me to run in their shoes. And then 
at North Carolina, I coached in Adidas. And it's back to Dean Smith for a quick second to finish this story. Michael Jordan, you might have heard of, was a fairly good basketball player at North Carolina and uh, had, had made a few shots in his time. But in 1984, I got a second phone call from Dean Smith, who said, would you come down to my office? So this time I went down to the basketball office, where I sat in a room with, again, Roy Williams, the assistant coach, and Dean, and a gentleman named Michael Jordan. And Dean said to me that Michael's desperate to make the Olympic team. And he said, oh, he deserves it. Why isn't Bobby Knight, the basketball coach, already taking him? He goes, well, that might happen. But we think Michael can beat Carl Lewis in the long jump. I said, I would love to give him a try. Well, what do we have to do? Well, long story, we, we created a plan. Michael came out for the track team for three weeks, never took a measured jump. We were too nervous to get an injury out of it, but he was doing pop-ups at 24 feet, which just meant he took like 10 steps and would pop and go 24 feet. And we're slowly helping him understand speed and get to the get to the takeoff board. And just as we were ready to enter him in his first track and field meet to try it, Bobby Knight did, in fact, call and make Jordan part of the 1984 basketball team. And Michael's track career ended on the spot. However, back in those days, Dean Smith was a converse man and all basketball uniforms and shoes were converse. And the deal for me to get Michael Jordan on the track team is that I had to outfit him in Adidas. And I did, because that was the shoe company he really wanted to do business with. And it's well marked that that's what he wanted. But Nike came in and made the deal of a lifetime, obviously, a big mistake for Adidas. But in any case, that's those are my two Adidas stories, Peter. Kenny Smith, by the way, a year or two later, did come out and ran the 100 and the 4 by 100 meeting relay for me in North Carolina. So those are my coaching prowesses. Well, another kind of segment of that Again, as part of the connection to Cliff Severn and Chris Severn. So there's there's actually photos in the Adidas archives of Horace Dossler with Cliff Severn and Chris Severn out yeah. in California looking at sh- shoe designs, new shoe designs to, to try and break into the basketball market. Like you said, because basketball was heavily converse in America and Adidas didn't really take it seriously at first. And, and the Severn brothers were actually the two who really had to cajole Horace Dossler and the, the Dossler family into really taking basketball seriously because all they cared about was was football, soccer, and track and field. And there was this big gap of basketball that th- was waiting to be exploited. And it, and it took until seeing some of the uh, American basketball players at the Olympics to kind of sell them on okay. that, whole, that whole thing. But yeah, Cliff Severn, I mean, like I said, it mentioned I'll do the- my homework on Cliff. I have to do my homework. But but now you know the Bruce Lockerbie story. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All these guys, it, it, when I talked to them over the phone, uh, Peter Snell was another. Peter Snell, I'm sure you would know uh, for the American audience. He was a New Zealand distance runner in the 800 meters, gold medalist in the 1960s. Again, all these guys, when I talked to him, Peter Snell told me, yeah, the night before I ran my gold medal run, Cliff Severn came to my room and hand delivered me my Adidas uh, spikes that I, I ran and, and won a gold medal. So, but it might have been a pile of cash that went with those shoes. Never know. <laughs> we're so, all amateurs, Peter, though. We we're all amateurs. So Cliff Severn, and U.S. cricket people know Cliff Severn. He's Cliffy, the guy who who is out at Woodley in, in Los Angeles at the cricket field. But I don't think a lot of people know he has this incredible role in sports history and the other connection to that story again people don't know i found some evidence phil knight before yep. he started nike with bill bowerman right. 
he used to come apparently to Cliff Severn's shop in California and would buy Adidas spikes to run in because again, part of the reason for, for founding Nike and starting Nike was he wanted an American brand right. to build up. And his, his only outlet at the time was to get the best quality spike at the time that's was foreign make and Adidas. That story is correct. And I should have known the name, but you're right. Phil in his book, Shoe Dog, which is just an amazing, amazing book by Phil Knight really talks about how Nike was started and all the shenanigans it took to start it. You're exactly right. He talked about going down to LA and buying spikes. And frankly, back in the day, you know, at least in my day, you know, my father ran in Spalding until Adidas. And then, you know, effectively we were in um, some early uh, Tiger shoes from Japan, which is where Phil Knight really, you know, attacked the Nike market and Adidas and Puma. And frankly, in the 1968 Olympics, when I got you know, seriously loving the sport. I was 11 years old. You you basically had Adidas or Puma, and Tommy Smith is running and setting the world record in the 200 in a pair of Pumas that had 64 little shark teeth spikes that then became ruled illegal and have never been made since. And uh, you know, so the, the two companies were just constantly looking at a way to create it, and they were all in leather. They were in kangaroo skin leather. The, the Adidas shoes and the Puma shoes. And then Phil Knight comes in with nylon and that just changed everything. So you touched on Michael Jordan, your, your, your brush with Michael Jordan at North Carolina. The other guy I wanted to ask you about in that time frame that you would have been on campus as an athlete and as a coach, Lawrence Taylor. Do you have any Lawrence Taylor stories? Every summer, there was a pretty hot softball league in Chapel Hill. A lot of athletes would come back and we'd all find our way onto somebody's softball team. And the team that I got put on one year was called the Unusual Suspects. So we were a bunch of coaches. So I had lacrosse and soccer and a few sports medicine trainers on the team. My brother was on the team with me. And not that I was a good baseball player, but somehow I ended up at shortstop on the night that we played Lawrence Taylor's basically ex-football players softball team. And I will only tell you that the rule was that if you were ever more than seven runs behind, the game was going to be called. But we were losing 21. We had, they scored 21 runs on us in the very first inning. So we had to get up and bat. I stopped the ball at shortstop with everything but my glove. I had bruises on my forehead, my knees, my ankles, my shoulders. They just were nailing home runs and balls. And Lawrence was just laughing and basically calling all of us coaches a bunch of losers. Of course, we're all 20 years older than most of them. But it was a great night. It was fun. We made it to the bottom of the first inning. So it was a one-inning game. I think we lost 21-7. to seven. I think we did score seven runs, too. And uh, that was it. That was my, uh, my real opportunity to spend a fun night. And there might have been some beer drinking after, after that game. But, um, you know, we can't talk about that. Who, in your eyes, was the better athlete, raw athlete, Lawrence Taylor or Michael Jordan? Can I tell you that the best athlete I ever met at North Carolina is a guy no one has ever heard of, but he was from Aruba, and he actually played on the North Carolina basketball team. But prior to coming to the United States to play on Dean's basketball team, he was on the uh, Aruban World Cup team that actually allowed him to play for Holland. So he played, I believe, in the 1974 World Cup for the Dutch, not saying he started. And then in the 1976 Olympics, he ran for Aruba in the 100 meters. And then he came to North Carolina 
His name is Randy Wheel, W-E-I-L. He went on to be a European basketball player and the head basketball coach, I believe, at UNC Asheville. But Peter, when you talk about an Aruban athlete who could play basketball with Michael Jordan, swim in the same pool as Mark Spitz, and play football with uh, Niskins and uh, Cruyff, the best athlete I ever knew. Plus, he played a mean jazz guitar. And then because he ran on the track team with us, in 1976-77, uh, I ended up being his touring roommate because I was a good boy on the track team and the coach decided that Lockerbie better babysit Randy Wheel or else Dean might be upset. So I'll tell you, he's the greatest athlete that I know that no one's ever heard of because he didn't make the finals in the 100-meter swim. He didn't make the finals in the 100-meter dash. He did play at North Carolina but was never a star. Ran on our track team as an older athlete. And uh, just an amazing character and an amazing, you know, amazing person. But yeah, he would have been somebody that Jordan would know and knows. And uh, I did enjoy running, having Kenny Smith on my team for 100 meters. I had a few football players triple jump and throw the shot. And uh, I will also tell you that Jack Nicholas's son, Jackie, was on the golf team at North Carolina. I was there and he would come out and run on the track. And I swear I could have made Jackie Nicholas a very good 800 meter I always wanted to, he was, he and Davis Love were roommates and they would come out and jog on the track and Jackie would do sprints. And I said, listen, if, if you don't make it in golf, I can make you a good 800 meter runner. Those are my days in Chapel Hill. Is there, is there anybody you've left out? There's just names falling left and right off the table here. The Tar Heel to love those names. You were a track and field coach there, I believe for five years, five years stretch in North Carolina. That's correct. A few years later, you told us about how you got your start in the, the stadium and venue design business. By 92, you had your first opportunity to get involved in an Olympic Games at Barcelona, the Summer Olympics in Barcelona, and subsequently you were involved in venue design at the 96 Games in Atlanta, 2000 in Sydney, 2004 in Athens, 2012 in London, 2016 in Rio. I mentioned those two earlier, but starting in 92, as somebody who had these aspirations as a track and field athlete yourself to one day get to the Olympics didn't happen for a variety of reasons. You mentioned injury and also the 1980 boycott of the Soviet Games. To finally get there 12 years later in a business capacity, what was that experience like for you? It's a great thing to be able to say that you grew up wanting to be an Olympian and I never was. And I'm not saying I had a great shot in 1980. In 1980, I had run the 12th fastest 1,000 in the year. And then it was, that was an indoor 12th fastest in the world at 1,000 indoors and thought I had a good shot. You know, 12th in the world, I've shot to make the American team. And then I ripped my calf, my calf muscle for the second or third time. And so I'm, I never would have said that I had, you know, I had a chance, but I didn't make the Olympic. I would not have made the Olympic team. So you're right. So look at 1992 and to have the opportunity to do just a very small piece in Barcelona. A small piece is a fun piece. Mondo Running Track, which is probably one of the more famous running track companies, Italian, had placed the new running track in the Montjuic Stadium in, in Barcelona. And about six or eight weeks before the uh, Olympic Games, uh, some rock and roll band called the Rolling Stones played there. And uh, the maintenance folks didn't exactly do a very good job on the grass field or the track. Always thought to be a soft opening for the Olympic Stadium. They ruined it all. And the folks at Barcelona were panicking. What do we do? Our brand new running track is destroyed. Eh, scratched up, scraped up, whatever. 
I had just been working at Wake Forest University where I took an indoor Mondo running track and I sprayed a track and field urethane and rubber chip on top of it. And it looked absolutely brand spanking new and spectacular. And when Mondo realized that I had done that with another company, they contacted me. And so I was actually brought into the Barcelona Olympics to evaluate with Mondo what they could do instead of repairing the track and having to build a brand new track, how we could go in and, and do minor repair work by resurfacing and, and relining the entire track. And that's what we did. So you can go back and look at Barcelona track photos and the track looks absolutely perfect. Grass fields fine. And that was my entree into the Olympic Games. And I was there for about six weeks and got to enjoy the games. So there's that story. Uh, that's 92. But 96, you know, the Atlanta Olympics are happening. And I got brought in to both work on the Olympic track and field stadium and the cycling, the road cycling events, which then led me also to the marathon because of out on the streets and developing all the spectator areas and closing down streets. So I worked for the first few years on the new stadium and the new running track and designed a new running track and the warm-up track in 96. But I will tell you the most wonderful experience I had. Um, I was able to bring my father in to help me as a volunteer on track and field and, and also to work on some signage issues that, that we were doing. And uh, on the day of the men's marathon, very early, before track and field really even started, my father's job was to be at the tunnel where the athletes would run out of the tunnel and then come back to the tunnel. And his job was to make sure nobody screwed around in the tunnel. My father got to the track at eight in the morning. My father, who in 1956 was supposed to run in the Melbourne Olympics at 800 meters, but got a little bit of smallpox and was not able to go. My father, who in 1960 had become an American and thought he would make the U.S. Olympic team in 1960, but they didn't allow him to because they said he had not been an American for enough years. So he didn't get to run in 60 or 56. It's a sad story in our house because then in 80, I didn't get to either. But my father at five in the morning with the lights on and one or two people in the Olympic Stadium went to the starting line of the 800 meters. And he, as he could, because he'd had a heart attack a few years earlier, kind of half walked, half jogged 800 meters by himself on the Olympic track. And for me, that's the greatest thing I could ever have as a, an Olympic member. A few nights later, I surprised him with finals tickets at the finish line. And we sat together with my brother and a few other friends and watched the 800 meters together. And we cried. Um, as that race went, knowing that we never had the chance to run in it. But you know what? I was one of the people in charge of it. And that was always exciting to me. So that's my 96 memory, and the rest are all great, but I'll never be able to beat that. Memory. That's quite extraordinary. 2000 Olympics. You were wearing Adidas that night, too. But. Yeah. <laughs> Moving a little bit forward, 2000 Olympics, now starting to get closer to cricket. 2000 Olympics, you're involved in in Sydney. And then you were also involved in, in the 2012 games in London. How did you, in between. <laughs> you did cricket in between. You, you were roped into the 2007 Cricket World Cup in the West Indies. And I think I remember you telling me a story one time about how you were involved in some Olympic stuff. And somebody invited you to a day at Lords, I guess, just to have some discussions. And then one thing led to another. And you wound up getting roped into it, the Cricket World Cup in the West Indies along the way. So when you were there in 2000 in Sydney doing stuff in preparation for the Sydney Games, 
I mean, it's it's when you're in Australia, and I was I lived there for six months. I did a semester abroad there at Macquarie, just north of Sydney. It's kind of hard to not notice cricket. What was your first exposure to cricket, or or were you so involved in Olympic planning stuff that you really didn't have time to be messing around with cricket stuff while you were in Sydney? So after the Atlanta Olympics, I I uh, was recruited on two major projects to lead some of the venue planning and operations for Ted Turner's Goodwill Games in New York in 1998, and I was then hired uh, to come with a lot of us, uh, of us Atlanta experts to Sydney to work with uh, the Australians that we had all met. I will tell you that the reason I still think the Sydney Australian Olympics are the best ever, the London folks will disagree, but for me, Sydney is the best Olympic Games ever because Sydney actually sent 20 or 30 executives and workers and they actually became staff. They didn't go as observers to the Olympic Games. They actually worked for us and with us. But well, we made a lot of friends with those guys so that when we were done, they brought us, not even as a thank you, it just Sydney really had more people who'd actually done Olympic Games than anybody before. So I went to Sydney, but you're exactly right. My, my job at Sydney was uh, actually to work on 19 different sporting events where I, brought, where I was responsible for helping architects design temporary grandstands and stadiums. So I worked on 19 different sports. I also worked on the track and field stadium, the Olympic Stadium. But I also worked as because of these temporary venues on road cycling. And road cycling had a start and finish line near the Sydney cricket ground. And we actually used pieces of the Sydney cricket ground as kind of areas for operations and uh, start and finish areas. So my, my memory is that I, I, I still had no clue about cricket in the sense of you know, as a profession, I never saw myself being involved in cricket. But in Sydney, I certainly knew the venue uh, and I was impressed by it. It's an amazing palace for the sport of cricket. But really, when you mentioned Lords, I was 17 and my father, again, was studying at Cambridge University. So I was living in Cambridge University town, the town of Cambridge. And uh, once upon a time, some friends of mine actually at University of North Carolina a distance runner and a decathlete from Duke were in London and they called me up and said, come meet us. So I'm 17 or 18, I guess, freshman after my freshman year at Carolina. And these two guys were there and they told me, Don, let's go to the cricket match at Lords. You can drink there. Well, you know, I'm 18, so I'm not, re- you know, I'm barely legal at all. And what I remember is the West Indies versus England in Lords would have probably been the summer of 1976 or 77. And in reality, uh, I don't remember much of the of the game because I was allowed to drink. So that's my entree into cricket. And it really wasn't again until I got involved in 2002. And I was working on the Athens Olympics and I got a phone call from London in which uh, the ICC's London lawyer, Grant Gordon, still a friend to this day, uh, contacted me and asked if he could talk to me about an opportunity with the International Cricket Council. And I said, well, why not? So I have this conversation with him, and the call goes something like this. Do you own any property in a Caribbean island? No. Uh, do you have any ongoing government work in the Caribbean islands? No. Do you have a favorite Caribbean island or any kind of visa or passport that would be from? No. So all my answers, whatever he asked me, were no. Uh, I'd been to the Caribbean a few times just on holiday, and I named those countries. And he said, look, 
we're looking for someone who has kind of Olympic and world FIFA Cup experience. You have both. Uh, the ICC selected a number of years ago, the West Indies. Uh, now that uh, Rupert Murdoch has put a few billion dollars into cricket and the South Africa has it in 2003, the ICC is questioning whether or not they really want the West Indies to have the 2007 World Cup. And I said, so what are you asking? Well, we're looking for somebody to go do a stadium assessment and a country assessment. And didn't you do that with FIFA and the Olympics? And I said, yes, I have. Long story, I go to London, I meet with Grant Gordon from Athens. Apparently I did well enough that they then asked me to fly to Jamaica to meet the CEO of the 27 Cricket World Cup, Christopher Deering. We hit it off and he tells me that he is a two-man band. It's him and one person, it's 2002 and they have five years to go to the Cricket World Cup, and basically ICC is pressuring every stadium to be torn down and new ones to be built and new airports and better hotels and you name it. And I was enjoying working in Athens, but I knew Athens was another year, year and a half project, and this was five or six years, and I had family, of course, closer in the States than in Greece. I took the job, I was offered the job, and I immediately became the venue development director and chief operating officer of the 2007 Cricket World Cup in 2002 and moved to Jamaica. And that's the beginning of my cricket history. So as you're entering the cricket, you mentioned the FIFA World Cup. I totally left that part out of the story. A 94 FIFA World Cup on U.S. soil. You were heavily involved in that. But that's another story for another day. We'll get to the cricket now first. Today's edition of the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast presented by Dream Cricket is also sponsored by Musa Cricket Stadium, the first and original turf wicket facility in the state of Texas, located at 5515 McKeever Road in Perlin, just five miles off the Bailey Road exit from State Route 288, a half hour south of downtown Houston. Musa Cricket Stadium includes fully enclosed locker rooms and change rooms, plus shower facilities after a day's play, as well as outdoor nets for all your training needs. Aside from the main turf stadium ground, there is now a second ground at the facility open for use. For more information, call 713-534-2195 Musa Cricket Stadium in Pearland, Texas. So the 2007 World Cup, there was a lot of stadium construction, a lot of stadium renovation that was involved. I remember you telling a story one time on a U.S. team bus back in the day when I was allowed to board the USA team bus. Well, even then, we we questioned we questioned whether or not we should. <laughs> these are the days when you go to a place like Nepal, getting taxis or, or getting from ground to ground in some of these remote locations were not the easiest things to do, logistic-wise. Take the first bullet, so uh, you know we, we we welcomed you in Nepal. So graciously, very graciously, yes, uh, you you magnanimously allowed me to board the team bus to to and from the ground, which I was very grateful for. But one of the stories I remember you telling me that you had these workers who were not very well versed in cricket and you drew up stadium design with what looked like a boundary line and they started building an actual fence rather than just account for a boundary rope. They started to build a proper fence as if it was a baseball field and you had to, you were tearing your hair out trying to get them, no, no, no. (laughs) What they were starting to build up, you had to go back and make them redo it and take it back down because (laughs) there were just some crazy kind of things that were lost in translation. So there was a whole lot of stress and chaos involved in getting things done for the 2007 World Cup. What do you remember most about that time span and that timeline? Like you said, there wasn't a whole lot of manpower when you were first brought on board. 
how did how did things unfold in that five year stretch from your perspective? And I guess if if there's one stadium venue that you're most proud of helping to get built or renovated, what would it be? I'll start by saying the story you just told. I'll finish it. Is this cricket oval in Grenada? The World Cup experience is critical to it because the reason I was really selected is that in, for the 1994 FIFA World Cup in the United States. I was brought on in 1989, a few years into my starting my company, which I did officially in 1985. So by 1989, I'm now part of the FIFA US uh, uh, FIFA team, getting all the stations ready. That was my job. And one of them was to go around the United States. 28 cities had bid for the FIFA World Cup rights. And I was part of the team that helped select the final nine stadiums for the FIFA World Cup in 94. And then I was part of the team and co-director of the team to actually get all the stadiums ready in time for the 94 FIFA World Cup, which, by the way, had a budget on our side of about $75 million because we basically had took NFL stadiums and just had to do the temporary overlay. But that included putting a natural grass field on top of Giant Stadium in New Jersey, and it included uh, putting natural grass fields in the Silver Dome, which didn't have any light. So we had to create a whole system that would be natural grass. And it was just really maybe the most wonderful experience I had to date working on the 94 FIFA World Cup might have been the highlight until cricket. So I said earlier that working at North Carolina was, as a coach was my master's degree in, in sports management. Well, I, I think I would hope that someone would give me a, an honorary PhD for the six and a half years I spent in the Caribbean as the venue development director and chief operating officer of the 07 World Cup. It's the most challenging thing I've ever done Still to this day, it was an amazing opportunity. I loved every second of it, even though I tended to go to bed every night at two in the morning and got up at six in the morning. I was so fearful that if I failed, my entire industry of being in sports management would be eradicated. I used to joke that I carried with me always a one-way ticket to Argentina in case I needed to make a quick and swift departure from somewhere because I was very nervous about what we could do. And I did have the ICC kind of pushing me behind closed doors that, hey, if you don't think the West Indies can do this thing, we'll be happy to take it from them and give them a future World Cup. Maybe we move it to England or India. And I went with the attitude of maybe that was my job to go and take the World Cup away from the West Indies. You know, if you fly around as you have and you go back to seeing the old stadiums that were there, the old Sabina Park, the old uh, cricket ground in Antigua, Kensington Oval in its worst days. Countries that didn't even have a stadium, St. Kitts, St. Lucia didn't even have a stadium. Countries who thought they had a great stadium and were wrong, Trinidad and Guyana, just places of this nature. And then I had to think about it the way I saw a FIFA World Cup, you know, great airports, uh, the way you were handled through immigration, moving teams around, hotels, uh, transportation, internet, medical facilities. It, if cricket was going to truly become more like a FIFA World Cup, I had to bring those things in. So when I took the job, every single day I was asked, yeah, but you're American. What do you know about cricket? I have become as big a cricket fan as I know. I go to the various cricket websites every day, even now. I'm a big fan of the sport. My phone has some of the greatest cell phone numbers on the planet, from cricket executives to some of the greatest players ever. I've made good friends in the sport, and I just love the game. To me, the 2020 game is more exciting than baseball. I can argue that any day. And as an American, I can 
explain the rules with salt and pepper shakers and glasses at a table, probably like you, to Americans who say, tell me about this sport. So I'm a big fan, but sure, was did I ever play it? No. What was my job? My job was to make sure that from the cricket wicket to the broadcast compound and to where people stood in line for tickets was world class. The actual operations of the event and the game, I left that to cricket experts, and I sure had a great one in Michael Hall, who's still one of the executives for the uh, T20 League in the Caribbean. So I knew I had cricket experts to run the games and make sure the teams were happy, but I wanted to make sure the stadiums were like no, no. So in the end, we had we put out a manual somewhere on my desk or behind my bookshelf is, is a manual that was about 300 pages and it basically said to government so you want to run a cricket world cup sign this document on page 300 and we'll give you a chance and i made every country have to bid therefore for a chance and i worked it out with the board and the two things that i think i did smartly was I suggested to the ICC that the West Indies Cricket Board just focus on their own team and that we would create a board of business people, maybe two from every island who understood spreadsheets and dollar signs and transportation and hospitality and tourism uh, and had political clout. And in that way, that was my board. And I think that was one of the smartest things I did early on with Chris Deering. And Chris Deering and I today are still great, great friends. And I really respected him as a person. But here I was, the big white American in the Caribbean in cricket. And I said, I was on the witness protection program. No one's going to find me. Who's going to look for a big white American in the West Indies in the sport of cricket? And so I was questioned every day. What do you know about the sport? But for six and a half years, my job was to not look over my shoulder, but to look forward and try and figure out how do we develop a slew of venues that won't be white elephants, because I thought I saw a few white elephants in South Africa. So the very first thing I did was suggest to Chris, let's create an observer program. Let's bring two people from all the countries who want to bid and go to South Africa. And I made it my job to lead that delegation with Chris Deering and figure out who we would interview, what games we would see, what stadiums we would see, and try to learn from the best in the business in South Africa. So in 2003, we took about 20 something people on a 10 day tour and really, really learned a lot. And some countries went home and said, we can't do this. Uh, Cayman, for example, Anguilla, uh, the Bahamas, for example, decided that they, they really shouldn't participate. And that left the rest of them, including the United States, who thought they would like to put in a bid. And you know what? The ICC was a little vague about who was hosting the World Cup. So they allowed Bermuda, Bahamas, and Cayman, and other countries that were not really in the United States who were not part of the West Indies cricket to actually bid just because they knew how difficult this was gonna be and they weren't really sure we could find nine Caribbean countries who could actually host a World Cup. So they made it as difficult as possible. And I respected that, it gave me the challenge. So when I went on my tour to every single country for two or three days and met with every prime minister and tried to scare them into realizing that if we accept you, you have no clue what this is going to do to your country. Positively for tourism, our business could be amazing. But if you mess it up, you'll probably never win re-election. And I would say that. And then I would also tell them I need your private personal cell phone number because if there's ever a night that I have to call somebody to fix something in your country, I, I want you to be the first to know. So that's kind of the, the situation I was in. And in the end, when I nominated countries like St. Kitts, who didn't even have a stadium, as one of our finalists, 
when I suggested that St. Lucia and Barbados should be combined to be a semifinal final because they're so close to one another, St. Lucia never having a stadium before. The old guard of Barbados, Jamaica, and Trinidad and Guyana, and a little bit uh, Antigua, were a little miffed by some of the things I did. I'm not really sure I'm allowed back in Guyana, as a matter of fact. Trinidad, I also had to go in and, and take the Brian Lara Stadium off grid because I knew it wouldn't be finished in time. Uh, there were things that I had to do that were very difficult. But go to your story. My proudest moment is that I believe in 2005, Hurricane Ivan came through the Caribbean and destroyed Grenada, the entire country. I mean, they, they, they got hit by a Category 5. They were completely devastated. The pictures that we were seeing, I was living in Jamaica, and by the way, it was a Hurricane 3 by the time it hit Jamaica, so I was stuck there. But the fact of the matter is Grenada was completely destroyed, and their cricket stadium completely collapsed. And Grenada had been selected because they were going to renovate their existing stadium. Now, the question would be, could they, in fact, build a brand new one? I got a phone call two or three days after their hurricane. I'm not going to name names. I'll just say that I got told to go to Grenada and basically pull them out of the World Cup to tell them that probably their matches would be moved to St. Vincent, maybe to Trinidad. But I also got a phone call from Keith Mitchell, the prime minister, who said, Don, when you can get to Grenada, please come and see me. I was actually flown to Grenada on a private jet because that's the only way you could get there. I landed and was picked up by British military and taken by helicopter to a British battleship of some kind out offshore where the government of Grenada was being housed because there was no building for them to be housed. And I met with Keith Mitchell and I was told that he was going to leave in a few days for China to make a deal that China would come in and bail them out for the entire country, roads, hospitals, schools, housing, and a cricket stadium. And I said, prime minister, I mean, Hospitals, yes, and roads and housing and government buildings, you need all that. Why Why would you even think about a cricket stadium right now? And he said, because I need to prove to the world that Grenada is alive and well, and I need tourists to come here in two years. Well, on my word, the ICC let us keep Grenada, and I didn't sleep for the next two years. And over the next two years, the Chinese sent 500 workers to Grenada to build the stadium that's there. There's a lot of funny stories, but the one you told is maybe the most hair-raising, and that is six weeks before the World Cup, I went there, and I used to give grades, A, B, C, D, F, or I did it by color, so it wasn't so schoolish. But I gave a red flag to Grenada and saying, you know, if you're not ready by my next inspection in three weeks with the ICC, we're going to have to remove. You've done a good job, but you haven't, you're not far enough along the stadium. There's no way it's going to be finished. And we sat down with the Chinese and they promised us it would be finished. Prime Minister Mitchell, you've got to let us keep this. And I just felt for them. I wanted it so badly for them. Three weeks later, I show back up, Peter, and here's your story. The stadium is remarkable. I, I cannot believe what the Chinese and the Grenada workers did in three weeks. I was just shocked. But when I got there and I walked out onto the field, there was an eight-foot chain-link fence being built where you and I would expect the rope to be. And I said, well, perhaps they're just protecting the field. No one should go onto the field. But I saw that the fence was not temporary. It was being poured in concrete. So I asked my Grenada associate, what's going on here? He goes, we don't know. And I said, get the Chinese here. And so sure enough, here come the Chinese with their interpreter and with their site plans. And they roll out the paper of grandstand, of the whole stadium planning. And I learned a really big lesson. 
you don't put temporary things on a construction because they think it's got to be built. So apparently one of the Chinese asked a Grenadian, what is this circle about 75 yards from the pit? And somebody said, oh, if you hit over it, it's six points. If you hit on the ground, it's four. Ah, really understood. They, hit, they, they heard the, if you hit it over, they looked at me and said, home run fence. I couldn't believe it. I said, I was so glad I was there. I said, gentlemen, you need to remove this immediately. This is a rope. And I realized, yeah, why would you have on, on a field, on a construction plan, something that was just a piece of rope that you would lay out on game day? So in reality, we had to, I used to joke that the Chinese were going to invent a new rule, and that was you build a fence, and it's an eight points if you scored it. If you hit it over the fence, if you hit the fence, it was six. If you hit it over, it was eight. You could get an eight in Grenada. Three weeks later, they put on an extraordinary set of matches and just a tear in my eye again, showing up for the first game and seeing how Grenada had really just pulled themselves out of a horrible situation. But, you know, you learn a lot of lessons on that. There are other stories. Chinese were not going to put in toilets. They just wanted to put the kind of Chinese hole in the ground in the bathrooms. I said, that won't work. They said, no, this is the Chinese way. I said, the Beijing Olympics are a few months away. If, in fact, they have holes in the ground, I'll understand it. But if they have real toilets in the Beijing Olympic Stadium for the Westerners, then you need to. Well, of course, the Beijing Olympic Stadium was built for the West, and we had to add toilets. There's just stories like that with weeks to go that you're just pulling your hair out. But you know what? In reality, we pulled it off, and that World Cup got finished. We had some extraordinary things happen to us, including, in my opinion, a murder of a coach from the Pakistan team, and I've got stories on that as well. But Let's just say I got my PhD. Uh, there was a lot of lessons learned, both in construction of venues, of which we really ended up building extra venues. I did take a look and see what got done in places like Dominica, who was not one of our teams, and in Bermuda, I knew what was happening in Fort Lauderdale. But the long story is that the West Indies pulled off an amazing World Cup. The Sri Lanka-Australia final was a great one until it wasn't uh, because they didn't have lights. And uh, Barbados had been told that it was an option. I kept telling them it was a requirement. Somehow we missed the the word requirement or option never seemed to, to be understood. But in the end, a great event. And to this day, you know, the most remarkable achievement, I think, of my career. You touched on a few things there about certain parts of the World Cup. The final obviously ended in not very ideal circumstances, to put it modestly. Bob Wilmer's death, you you referred to it as murder. There are a lot of things about that tournament that have been maligned over the years. Do you think a lot of the criticisms have been fair? Or what do you think the sentiment from your perspective in terms of how the World Cup should be remembered versus how it is remembered in large sections of the cricket media? Name another country that built nine new cricket stadiums and 26 new training fields while they were renovating their hospitals, hotels, roads, and internet. We spent $1.1 billion on new cricket stadiums in the Caribbean. South Africa spent $23 million renovating. $23 million budget in South Africa, a $1.1 billion budget in the West Indies. I used to say very, very categorically, it wasn't an even playing ground. ICC was going to pull the event to somewhere else. We even had to have uh, worked with a Pakistani cricket official who helped us write the bailout plan. And the bailout plan was that if we looked like we were going to fail and couldn't put on the World Cup for any reason, acts of God, hurricanes, terrorism, finance, 
France, whatever, secretly, it was going to be moved back to South Africa. So South Africa was going to get 07, and there were a lot of people who thought it should just because it would be simple, just like South Africa was ready to take you know, the IPL. The fact of the matter is I would tell you that nine Caribbean countries who took it upon themselves to meet what the ICC required, which was to create world-class stadiums uh, that could still be used today and are, and have created themselves their fine cricket league, 2020 cricket league. They had a T20 World Cup a few years later, and I would ask, how did that go? Because they didn't have to build a new stadium then. They had people who would actually run an event. We were dealing with countries who would be used to an England team coming in or an India team coming in or somebody coming in for a tour and having a game or two and then leaving. All of a sudden, we have 16 countries, including your own, coming in with the world's media. And the whole idea was we had to come up with venues. There was no money to do it. The governments had to go out and beg, borrow. The TV money comes after the event. So you're not sitting there yet. I mean, the first thing we had to do was to go and actually find a way to get banks in the Caribbean to help governments and the Cricket World Cup Organizing Committee operate. So unlike a World Cup or Olympic Games where all of a sudden billions just pour into those countries and cities, the Rupert Murdoch billions were just kind of coming into play. We were the second event and it doesn't exactly just show up in your bank account and people start building stadiums. If you want the World Cup, build a new Viv Richards Stadium because they didn't feel you could expand the ARG. Uh, if you want to be the host of the finals, you needed to have 27,000 seats instead of 12,000 seats at Kensington Oval. If you want to have the opening game, when Jamaica did, uh, Sabina Park needs a whole new facility. So what other country has ever had to do that? And by the way, the West Indies isn't a country. It's a collection of countries who, by the way, are rather not the most friendly to one another. And for me to make countries sign contracts was crazy. There were days where Trinidad asked me, show me that Jamaica signed the contract and then we'll consider signing the contract. The hardest group to get anything done was Barbados because they are such perfectionists. They would have meetings to have meetings to have meetings before the decision would be made. It just took forever. And yet I loved working there. In fact, I moved my home from Jamaica to Barbados because it was so crazy to try and run around the Caribbean with the airline situation. So it was easier for me to move my headquarters to Barbados, work and live there, work with them because they were going to host the finals. And I could make day trips on some of the smaller airlines to some of the smaller countries on the eastern side. Uh, we also had uh, hurricanes that got in the way. We had to have meetings uh, in London once because no Caribbean island could host any meetings. Uh, so we flew as many people as possible to London in 2005. I'll take it as a compliment that people might even still be talking about it to this day. But I tell you, name me another country that if you had to say tomorrow, uh, countries need to tear down what they have. And you know, it's not realistic. But take a new country, take a new country that's never had a World Cup and say, okay, you can have a Cricket World Cup, even in the United States. Let's build nine, 10, or 12 cricket stadiums that actually meet I excuse me, ICC standards. Well, by the way, what is an ICC standard? It didn't exist. So I had to help write the book on what it was to basically have them approve what the lighting would be, what the video boards would be, what kind of power and internet you needed, how many seats the media needed to have, where the spectators could go, where the sponsors could go. There was no booklet that said, this is what you have to have. So 
These were trying days, but I loved every minute of it. And as I said, I may be the only person in the world who can claim all the cricket stadiums in the Caribbean, the United States, Bermuda, and I've done some other work in a few other countries, including the Maldives and Singapore, where I did some consulting on some venues there. So, you know, I'm at about 16 cricket stadiums around the world and 26 training centers and training fields around the world. Any country who wants to try and do that in this day and age will find it difficult. One other thing you touched on there about the whole World Cup experience in 2007, Bob Woolmer's death. This has been a hot topic now for 14 years after Pakistan was eliminated from the group stage with the loss to Ireland. That moment was soured when it emerged that Bob Woolmer had died. A lot of people still think he was murdered. Do you think he was murdered? What do you remember about that scenario as it unfolded during the tournament? And just take us through it from your perspective. What do you think honestly happened? I was in St. Kitts and uh, I get a phone call and I know who it is. Happy to name names on this one because I was a big fan. Tony Still out of England was one of our top cricket producers. He still is. He just is one of those guys that runs around with TV crews and produces world cricket all over the world. And Tony was one of our top guys. And he calls me and says, Don, is it true? I don't know what he's talking about. And he goes, Wilmer. I said, amazing game yesterday. Amazing. Can't believe Ireland beat Pakistan. He goes, well, there's a lot of people who think it was a thrown game, he says. I said, well, what's the issue, Tony? He says, we're going on the air in a few minutes. Was Walmer's death natural or what are the police saying? This is the first I heard. I had no clue. I said, I'll get back in touch with you. I immediately called Chris Deering and he goes, Don, I'm, I'm with Scotland Yard. <laughs> I said, so it's true? He goes, well, he's dead. Chris, I said, what's happened? He goes, well, we're going to wait for the coroner to make his judgment. I said, TV's asking for a comment right now. I said, Chris, we've just had our Atlanta bombing. We had talked about that a lot. We had talked about the fact that the 1996 Olympics had had a scar because of the bombing in the Olympic Park. We watched the movie now about Richard, uh, what's his last name? Richard Jewell, yeah. Richard Jewell, thank you. See, I, know, I know you always win every, every contest, trivia contest, sports trivia contest. So, you know, I was part of that. I was there that night. So I knew what that did to the Atlanta Olympics. And I just would tell you that we had talked about it internally a lot. What we've got to make sure everything that could possibly be a catastrophe is handled quickly and swiftly and well. You may or may not know or remember that a few days earlier, Pakistan was in a hotel and India was in a hotel in Trinidad, and they were doing warm-up matches in Trinidad, and there was a bomb scare at the team hotel at like five in the morning. So this was not our first episode with a potentially bad thing. We've got India and Pakistan in the same country in warm-up matches, and it was a, a very scary moment then. So we're all on high alert. Our security people are on high alert. We, we're not talking about it. We're just doing our best and I'll just say that when the Jamaican coroner came out and said he had been strangled, I've never doubted that. A few days later, Scotland Yard came back with a different version. There's too many other things, Peter, that probably we need a whole hour and a half on that had me convinced from that very first day 
Bob Walmer wasn't a drinker, and yet somebody sent champagne to his room after a loss. That's a strange thing. Somebody brought that champagne to him. That's room service. There are other people around the team that have never been seen since the incident. I mean, even local people who were kind of there to help the team out. I don't know the details, but I would just say I've never been convinced otherwise. And those were sad days, of course. It just, just made sense to me at the time. It still does. You mentioned comparing it to the Centennial Park bombing in 96, having that kind of moment put a dark cloud on an event. And to this day, I mean, it's one of the first things I think of uh, about the Atlanta Olympics I can remember. It happened, it was after midnight, 1 a.m., 2 a.m., whatever time it was on the NBC broadcast. And I remember Janet Evans was being interviewed at the time on TV and she had basically flopped trying to follow up her previous gold medal wins in swimming. And she was being interviewed and this big blast goes off. She was kind of startled and almost confused where I think on the footage, she was even like giggling, like, oh my God, like, what, what was that sound? Like, sure, and then, right? then kind of like a few seconds later, it starts to like clock on, like, oh my God, like there's been an explosion and screw the interview. I'm getting the hell out of here. And then in the chaos that ensues, that day and the next day and, and you know talking about conspiracy theories and whatnot to do with bob woolmer again the whole richard jewell saga for people who haven't seen the movie and don't remember living through it at the time he was first a hero and then he was fbi most wanted number one for thinking that it was basically an inside job and, and that he had tried to plant a bomb himself to make himself look like a hero to then discover the bomb and finally much later on having his name cleared properly that he was actually a hero who who saved many many lives that night something like this you say you prepare for it but even despite all the, the preparations you can do when, when something like this happens it can floor you having that happen and the way that it happened the sequence that it happened after that, literally less less than 24 hours after the Ireland win over Pakistan. What did that do in terms of not just the fear and the uncertainty over what exactly happened to Bob Woolmer, but again, you know, the Pakistan team and the context of the tournament itself. Was there any discussion at that point in time in terms of do we need to take a step back here? And was there any thought to putting the tournament on pause and possibly going into a further investigation or or is this something that, for lack of a better way of putting it, you just compartmentalize it, tournament's got to go on? Well, we surely did not compartmentalize it. When I got off the phone with Chris Deering and had to return the call to Tony, still, of uh, the broadcast service, I just said, look, I think the only comment that can be made is we're very sorrowful about the news of Bob's death, and we're letting Scotland Yard, the Jamaican constabulatory force, and uh, others look into it, and there'll be comments by Chris Deering and Malcolm Speed later. So now we get to Malcolm Speed, who I call immediately, who I call chief. I, I loved working with Malcolm Speed, the Australian ICC CEO, and I said to him, I said, chief, you obviously know about the Walmer story. He goes, Don, you got to get me on a plane as soon as possible. He was in St. Lucia. So we did. I actually had friends in St. Kitts who were able to work out a plane to uh, take CEO Malcolm Speed to Jamaica so he could get there without going through standard airline issues. So Malcolm went there, and I really did leave it to Chris and Malcolm Speed, who now are both in Jamaica, and leaving it with their dealings with the Walmer family, 
uh, with Pakistan, with uh, the ICC, with the police, etc. Again, I was the chief operating officer. My job was to run the day-to-day -day business of the games. Stadiums were done, so now I'm the COO. Chris, as the CEO, was managing the politics, the money, the, the marketing, and the, the media. So effectively, his day-to-day -day got very, very well caught into that. So Malcolm Speed and Chris were now kind of, they had to remain in Jamaica. They just had to be there for the daily press conferences and the things that were taking. And, you know, it was maybe to the benefit of the event a week or two. I'm, I'd have to go back and see how long it took. But when Scotland Yard did their own independent assessment and their own coroner's report, they came back and said it was natural causes. Maybe it's unfair to say, but I think by the time we got into it, it got back to its you know, normal course of events because of what Scotland Yard had said. I just personally have never let it go from my gut. In fact, the, the day after, when, uh, the evening of the death, I happened to have dinner with Rory Stain of South Africa. Rory Stain is a, a name you should know. Rory would be a great interview. Rory is a South African who was in charge of all security for the South Africa World Cup. But before that, he was the head of the bodyguards for Nelson Mandela. He's written a book about being that. And so when Mandela became prime minister, Rory had already been the, prime, the, for, the former prime minister's you know, head of security. And now here he was. And when you see the movie Invictus about the Rugby World Cup being in South Africa, but there is a actor who plays Rory's part very, very well. So I was with Rory. And, you know, again, we just felt what the, the information we were getting, it wasn't very simple. Let's put it that way. And so for the World Cup to move on, it was a hard decision. And the decision was to move forward. You know, Pakistan gets knocked out. Uh, the World Cup changes when India gets knocked out. We had thought there would be a Pakistan-India match in Kensington Oval for a, uh, a quarterfinal. And instead, it was Bangladesh versus Ireland. Now, you can imagine what that did to, to the ticketing. You know, the, the England-South Africa match was massive, but the ireland Bangladesh match didn't quite have the, the flow we were expecting with what we could have predicted to be a Pakistan-India match. So didn't get to have that one. So the game went on. Of all the things that happened in that World Cup from not just an event management perspective, but just as a human who loves cricket and appreciates cricket, what do you remember most and what do you want people to remember most about that event? I got to become very close to a great Australian cricketer named Matthew Hayes. Hayden, we call him Hados, right? So we became very friendly. And the reason we became very friendly is because Australia, as the number one seeded team, was placed in St. Kitts. And St. Kitts just went out of their way. I mean, what an amazing country they are and continue to be. Uh, but the hospitality that was afforded to those four teams was second to none. And those four teams would have been Australia, South Africa, Scotland, and the Netherlands. And to go fishing and to play golf and, and to play cricket and, and just the hospitality and the food and the way it was set up by, you know, that entire, entire team there helped me actually spend nights because I was basing myself there in the first round, making day trips wherever else I had to go. But that's where I started the tournament and got to know the Australian team from the moment they landed and, and you know, were bypassed right on from the plane right onto a bus and bypassed customs and went right to their their hotel and they loved it they just told me they'd never been treated anywhere in the world like they were treated in st kitts so let me just now fast forward to that finals that final was an amazing game sri lanka australia 
the light started to go dim because there was a two hour rain delay. We didn't want to do the Duckworth Lewis to finish. And so we were doing everything we could to play the game out. And at some point with Sri Lanka batting, the umpires decided to call the match. The moment that happened, as the teams walked off the field, the closing ceremonies people jumped into action and had a wonderful closing ceremonies planned with fireworks, et cetera. And so they ran onto the field and the ropes being removed and wickets are being removed and the closing ceremony stage is being rolled on the field when all of a sudden Sri Lanka is protesting that they still think there's enough light. And, you know, this is the madness of it all. We had to get everybody back off the field, and that took 15 or 20 minutes. So we lost 15 or 20 minutes, I'm sure. And Sri Lanka goes on to bat for maybe another 20 minutes and still loses, but felt like they got their fair share. Well, now comes the closing ceremony. The closing ceremonies finish, and maybe for the first time in six years, I can just exhale. My Peruvian wife, has, Leila, has taught me the word tranquilo. So I was tranquilo all of a sudden. I was able just to breathe. I don't know that I had really taken a deep breath for six years, Peter. And we did it. We, we might have limped there at the finish line and people can say what they want, but we did it. And there was no question Australia was the rightful winner by the score anyway. So now what do you do? It's 20 minutes later. Everything's done. Fans are leaving. And I had a tradition that I've learned for the American Super Bowl. Jerry Anderson of Populous, may he rest in peace, is still continued. But after the, the team that always gets the Super Bowl ready every year for the NFL meets at midfield, brings out champagne and cigars. And I told my team, when it's all said and done, find me at midfield on the wicket. There will be coolers of champagne, cigars, rum, whatever, right on the field. I think the fact that the closest people I had worked with for those six years all met me at the pitch in the darkness with cell phones taking pictures and cameras and people taking it was one of the most highlight things you could ever want. But the best part then was I was invited into the Australian dressing room. So they asked me to come in and I spent 15 minutes with them. But then I invited them out to the pitch. And with nobody in the stadium, Hados brought out the Australian team and their trophy. And so here we are, the executives of the World Cup, some ICC officials and Australia on the pitch, smoking cigars and drinking champagne and rum and whatever else people were drinking. And just realizing, wow, we did it. We did it. We were a sporting event that went through hurricanes, deaths, Chinese construction workers who didn't understand our sport, but whatever it took and complete doubt absolute complete doubt and criticism and then who's this american you know all of this stuff and we did it uh, i'll just never ever encounter the relief and the joy professionally from from that night covered about 75 minutes with don ockby and we didn't even scratch the surface with his foray into american cricket as the ceo of the usa cricket association and we'll get into that in the next episode part two of the don ockby saga we covered a lot of territory in part one ending with the very very memorable not always for the right reasons ending to the 2007 cricket world cup in the west indies 
And not long after that, Don made his way into American cricket as the CEO of the USA Cricket Association. And we'll get into that in great detail in the next episode, part two of the Don Lockerbie saga coming up later this week. That's all for now, though. Thanks again to our sponsors, Dream Cricket and Musa Cricket Stadium. And I encourage everybody who likes the show, if you haven't become a Patreon supporter already, there's plenty of ways and opportunities to show your support by becoming a patriot becoming an eagle there's other tiers you can join for as little as three dollars a month i appreciate all those who have supported the podcast thus far you help to keep it running and you can also like subscribe to the podcast on youtube you can also download it and link to it on spotify on anchor fm and numerous other podcasting outlets i'm peter delapena thanks for tuning in again to the stars and stripes cricket podcast reminding everybody God bless America, and God bless American cricket.